The Nourish and Shine podcast is provided for educational and informational purposes only, and it is not medical, mental health, or healthcare advice. The information presented here is not intended to diagnose, treat, heal, cure, or prevent any illness, medical condition, or mental or emotional condition. Please make sure you consult with a trusted healthcare professional before you make any changes. Welcome to Nourish and Shine, where I talk with passionate leaders in the fields of nutrition, functional and integrative medicine, and wellness, providing inspiration and practical advice to nourish your mind, body, and spirit, optimize your health, and live a whole vibrant life starting now. Today's interview is so good, and I am very excited to share it with you. I'm talking with Dr. Gretchen Kubaki. She is the PCOS psychologist. She is a certified PCOS educator and founder of PCOS Wellness. She's also authored two books. The first one is The PCOS Mood Cure, and the second book is Moving Through Grief. I highly recommend that you check out both. I love today's interview because we talk about so many different aspects of PCOS, and I feel like it's really underappreciated how important the emotional and mental aspects of having PCOS is to your overall health. So we're going to talk about teens with PCOS. We're talking about food and food cravings and the importance of sleep, also meditation, dealing with infertility and loss in women with PCOS. We also get into use of different tools like the Muse headband, weighted blankets, wristbands, and supplements. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. And if you do, please leave me a ratings or review on iTunes. Welcome to Nourish and Shine. Today I'm talking with Dr. Gretchen Kubaki. She is a health psychologist in private practice in Los Angeles and author of the PCOS Mood Cure. She's also the founder of PCOS Wellness. Welcome, Dr. Gretchen. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Before we get too deep into this, let's first talk about how did you get into PCOS and if you could give us a little background on yourself as well. Sure. Like many people, my practice specialty evolved from personal experience. So I was diagnosed with PCOS when I was in my early 20s. They threw a pack of birth control pills at me and said, come back if you feel like getting pregnant. And that was my entire education in PCOS. And of course, it was sort of something that seemed fine initially. Um, But when I was 30, I started having all sorts of problems and a lot of surgeries and discovered that medical world just wasn't terribly interested in this problem and I needed to figure it out for myself. So as I became a health psychologist due to other interests, things like a family member with cancer and that sort of thing, what I discovered was that PCOS was highly emotional in nature and there was absolutely nothing about that part of it. So there were people starting to address the diet, exercise, that kind of stuff, but nothing about the psychological parts of PCOS. And I thought, this is what I need to take care of. When it comes to the psychological, like emotional parts, what are those needs? So I actually started out with a specialty in infertility and quickly discovered that about 75% of my patients had infertility as a result of PCOS. And what I was seeing, of course, was a lot of grief related to miscarriages and not being able to get pregnant. But I also saw a lot of fear, anxiety, anger, frustration. 
And I realized that depression and anxiety were big components of this. Around that time, I met someone who had put together some things from the dietary side. And I started looking and saying, you know, we can't just address this piecemeal. The typical PCOS patient really should end up with about half a dozen doctors if they're going to have comprehensive coverage. And that's very unusual to find someone who actually has that whole team assembled. And I thought, you know, how do we treat depression and anxiety? Well, of course, there's the typical talk therapy. I'm very much a minimalist when it comes to prescription medication of the psychotropic sort because it works for some people. It doesn't work for all people. And with PCOS, if you're not getting at the underlying symptoms around the hormonal imbalances, you are not going to ever effectively manage the depression and anxiety. So I began to study more of that and evolve a holistic treatment approach, which includes focus on sleep and nutrition and the right kind of exercise, meditation, stress reduction, those sorts of things. And so it was, it was sort of practical. I, I practiced on myself and saw what worked and I did research and I pulled in the research and then started working with patients in ways that that fit within the dynamic of traditional psychotherapy, but really was an evolving holistic and integrative psychotherapy. When you talk about like the ideal team should have like half a dozen doctors, what do you see as like the ideal team? Like who should a PCOS patient have on their on their medical team? Depending upon what the symptoms are that are most frustrating for them, they need an endocrinologist or a reproductive endocrinologist a gynecologist, of course, an internist or general practitioner. They probably need a dermatologist. They need a psychologist. And they may also need somebody. I I see a lot of women who have gastrointestinal issues that are definitely seeming to be related to PCOS. So a good GI doctor is often that sixth person. Sometimes it's also having an acupuncturist. Um, so, you know, again, very particular, but I think we should all be seen by endocrinologists for sure. We'll zoom out for a second. Generally PCOS. I know there's a few, um, types of PCOS or presentations of PCOS. Can Mm -hmm. you speak to that? And then also like for people who are like, what are they talking about with PCOS? Let's just give a general, like, yes. Yes. So PCOS stands for polycystic ovary syndrome. It's a bit of a misnomer in that it's not really all about your ovaries and it's not just a reproductive syndrome. And we call it a syndrome instead of a disease because it's a whole bunch of different things put together. It's not something where you can say, take your blood pressure and check and go, oh, that person has high blood pressure. Let's give her a pill and fix it. It's much, much, much more complicated than that. Um, so it's something that is often misdiagnosed, underdiagnosed. It's, it's starting to get a little bit better, but the different types of PCOS is kind of a new lens. So what we've seen historically is that PCOS is the primary cause of female infertility. Most women with PCOS have um, elevated androgens, so the male hormones, which may cause symptoms like excess facial hair growth or hair growth on the body where it doesn't belong, acne, aggressiveness, irritability, those sorts of things where we're out of hormonal balance. Um, But what we're seeing now is, and there's always been a small subset of what we call skinny PCOS or lean PCOS, which is more typically women who do not have the extra weight, which is a huge problem for most PCOS patients. They seem, in my experience, to have more of the problems with acne and with hair loss on their heads. 
And so they've now broken it into four or five subtypes. From my perspective as a psychologist, they're not particularly relevant. For somebody who's doing something like what you're doing in a more um, direct health treatment kind of way or somebody who's working as a dietitian, those types might be more useful. I think in general, though, taking the approach that this is a population that either has um, insulin resistance or is highly likely to develop insulin resistance is the correct approach. So especially for anyone who's listening and is trying to kind of do it yourself, um, assume you have insulin resistance, especially if you are carrying any extra weight. Insulin resistance is kind of the key point to underline here. And um, when you're working with people, what sort of things are you doing to help support that piece? As you know, that when you're licensed as something, you can only provide services in that area. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, we do have a growing awareness about the nutritional role in psychology. So I provide a lot of education about the nutritional role, like why it might not be good to have six cans of energy drink a day or why it might not be good to have meals consisting of sandwiches and pasta all day and then how that unfolds in the gut, which is linked to the brain health. So most of our neurotransmitters, which is what keeps our brain healthy and going, are produced in the gut. And when people start to get that picture that, oh, what I eat is affecting mood, we talk about that sort of thing. Um, you know, how carbohydrates can be self-soothing, but they also fuel cravings, which are kind of the hallmark of PCOS and going from there. So it's trying to give people kind of the well-rounded look at the nutritional piece. And then of course, also how do these things play in, you know, if you're not getting enough sleep or it's not good quality sleep, you're probably going to wake up craving fast energy, which means carbs that are going to get into your system quickly and contribute to that insulin resistance. So I do a lot more education probably than the average psychologist does. I'm always linking it back in and looking at what's preventing someone from taking better care of themselves because let's be real, taking care of PCOS is kind of a part-time job. Yeah. So so that's the stuff we look at. And I love how you tie everything together so seamlessly um, as far as the food cravings and the sleep. And one of the things I noticed on your website was you have a food and mood log. Can you why that sort of tracking and um, association is important? Yeah, it's really important because one of the biggest problems people come into me with, I'll typically get someone who is really depressed and really anxious, probably having sleep problems, maybe has an eating disorder, and just feels like they've tried everything and is, is you know, they've got battle fatigue from this whole thing. And so what I like to look at is the idea of food affecting mood because the front line of treating PCOS seems to be to tell everybody to lose weight across the board and go gluten-free, dairy-free, and you know adhere to a keto diet as the latest trend. And that's not necessarily accurate for an individual. So broadly, I would say, yes, everybody in America should be reducing their carb intake and increasing their, their intake of healthy fats, for example. But I say, why don't you try some different things? See how you feel. Do you feel great when you eat a bowl of oatmeal and an hour later you could eat everything in the entire house? Do you feel like totally mood neutral when you eat a chicken breast and broccoli and find that, huh, I'm not even thinking about food until dinner time. That's interesting. What happens if you drink a soda or if you have that extra coffee in the afternoon? 
What happens if you have a glass of something alcoholic? And so getting the awareness brought in as to what might be affecting their mood, and then they can make better choices about what it is that works for them. I know one of the groups you're passionate about working with is teens. And to be a teen with PCOS is extremely hard. So it is. It's really excruciating. Having a psychologist work with is beyond important, but where do you start with teens and what sort of things um, do you find to be most relevant? Where I start with teens is usually with their parents, actually. I often have a mom or both parents contact me saying, my teen is struggling, all she eats is junk food, and she's gaining weight, and she's so depressed, she won't come out of her room. So again, I I go from the educational side, like let's, let's talk about what's going on there and why that might be happening so that they can stop blaming the teen and start focusing on it as a health problem instead of an attitude problem. And then we talk about how things might change in terms of the whole family structure and how that works with food and with exercise and how you prioritize activities that the family shares, what you model behaviorally for your child or this teen with PCOS, and really also teaching how, although this is not something you want to be diagnosed with and it's definitely not fun, The great advantage of it is knowing now and being able to take a lot of proactive action now to prevent future health problems and to learn how to take really good care of yourself and if you want a family, to have a family. So I try to implant a little hope and also some future focus with that because it's very hard for teens to think, well, this is, you know, but I want to go out and like go to the pizza party with my friends and eat everything and talking about, well, great, go to the pizza party, but like have two slices and fill up your plate with salad, right? And talking about how to make it kind of real and realistic and doable and not make them stand out from their peers. Because if you're saying, okay, the only way to deal with this is you've got to brown bag it every day, take your little lunch with your chopped up carrots and celery and four ounces of turkey breast, they are not going to do it. Do you see any more prevalence of like disordered eating? Yes. So actually one of the places where I had the big light bulb moment was I met a dietitian who had worked in an eating disorder treatment center and had just observed over the years the phenomenal number of PCOS patients that she had seen in inpatient eating disorder treatment. And she started doing more research and putting it together that this was something that really caused or contributed to an eating disorder. So there are a lot of psychological factors that do cause eating disorders in general, but what we're looking at here is really how is the hormonal piece, the imbalance, you know, feeling super irritable, cranky, depressed, no energy, exhausted. You discover that eating cookies after lunch every day just like kind of softens up the afternoon a little bit and you can be like a nice normal person. And that sort of thing is where it leads to problems because as you know, the insulin resistance cycle, you know, your sugar goes up, you feel great, you've got energy. And then it drops quickly, and all of a sudden you feel depleted, fatigued, you crave more sugars, more starches, and you take those in, and then you start gaining weight. And a lot of people will figure out that if they restrict or they overexercise or that they purge, say by vomiting, 
they can get rid of the calories and still keep eating. And so that's where it kind of tends to play in with, uh, particularly with teens with eating disorders. And so it depends on the severity of the eating disorder, but typically what I'm seeing is what we call binge eating disorder or some sort of um, mild bulimia. So a lot of times it's an exercise bulimia. I'm a good example of that. When I was a teenager, I would have pretty much all my food was toast and salad and I would swim for five hours a day. And so I look for those sorts of things and talk about how that's not realistic, it's not sustainable, what could we do instead where you get to eat, but you're maybe focusing on different things and definitely getting the family involved if we're talking about a teenager. That just strikes so many chords with me. I, I have PCOS too and mm-hmm. disordered eating. And it was, you know, I started running track and like you all of a sudden are like, oh, I'm losing weight and like I feel good. And all of a sudden was restricting a lot and it was really challenging. And I, I feel like once you've had disordered eating, you never really get rid of it, which may not be correct. But at least from my perspective, that is always kind of in the back of your mind. I think it's something that is probably always there to some degree. I I believe you can recover from, but maybe it's more of an addiction lens, which is saying, you know, like people would say, I'm a recovering alcoholic if I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, what we might say is I'm a recovering food abuser or exercise abuser, or I'm a recovering eating disorder patient because we do have to eat all day long every day for the most part. And our society is really overloaded with messaging about how we should eat, what we should eat, when we should eat. It's really almost impossible to escape the dietary trends and fads that come about with regularity. And, you know, when you've had that mindset of this is the only way I can control things you know, there's some, there's some other psychological factors. There's power to be derived from that. You know, if I don't eat except for, you know, I don't know, like I said, lettuce and toast, basically. <laughs> there was also cheddar cheese in there. Um, <laughs> you know, if I don't eat that, then I can be an average sized teenager and maybe I'll be popular socially and maybe I can look good in the cute clothes that my friends are wearing. And mm-hmm. you know, so we have to look at those things and, and know that, yeah, that stuff, It recedes to the back, but if you are under pressure later in life, you have to be mindful that you don't go back to that way of trying to control your life and your behavior and your food. I also like that you bring up the food cravings piece and how important that is, but also um, like the signs and symptoms, like the anxiety and irritability and that like the health problem is not an attitude problem for teens. Um, Exactly. especially as someone who has has had unstable blood sugar, I know how bad you get super anxious when you feel like like, (laughs) you can be so crabby. Like I personally, I'm so crabby or was so crabby. My husband would know that look I had in my eye, you know, and like (laughs) where you were about to chew his arm off. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think for teens too, um, Mm. especially when we're not getting at the root cause, it's way too easy to be like, oh, they have anxiety. As far as like how you support um, women through this, women and teens, is it mostly like cognitive behavioral therapy and like education or are there other tools um, used as well? It's a, it's a mix. So my, my overall training, you know, it falls into a couple of different theories, one of which is cognitive behavioral therapy. 
but it's really more comprehensive. I'm looking through a lens of somatic therapy, which is body-based therapy. So what's happening in your body and how can you manage things? For example, I teach meditation. I like to have my client in the room with me so I can see what's going on with their breathing. Are they tapping their foot, swinging their leg? Are they not breathing? Um, I look through the lens of cognitive behavioral, which involves challenging some inaccurate thoughts. Um, so again, that gets into what I kind of call the overall educational part. I don't do so much of the formal cognitive behavioral stuff in terms of having people writing down exercises and doing homework because one really specific reason about this in connection with PCOS, that is one of the fastest ways for a client with PCOS to feel like a failure. It's probably all they can do to actually show up for the therapy and then to talk to them about, and you need these 27 supplements spaced out two hours before meals, one hour after meals, and you've got to exercise this certain way for 30 minutes per day, five days a week, and you need to meditate, and, and, and. If I assign them homework, <laughs> they're probably not coming back. And they need to come back so that they can get all the rest of what there is to get. You can add that in later in a much more effective way. But when someone's starting out in a really dysregulated way, you've got you've to meet them where they are. I love that you use a couple of different approaches there. And speaking of meditation, I saw on your website, the Muse device. And can mm-hmm. you speak to how you use that with your patients? I actually don't use it in the office. It's something that I introduce to them as one way of approaching mindfulness and meditation. So for me, the, um, the Muse is a great device. I have some people, for example, who are very tech-oriented, like they're video game designers and computer programmers. They're so much more excited about having a device that they can use. And whatever gets you excited, if you're the type that wants to watch a movie about something or you want to read a book about it or you want to use an electronic device or an app, I'm very adaptive around that. My favorite way to go about meditating if you don't know how to do it is to download the free Insight app and just start with something really short. Um, But I think Muse is kind of a brilliant tool. So I'm curious how you you use it in your practice. I use a Muse personally. Um, All the students that I train, I teach about the Muse and I use heart math too, Mm -hmm. um, heart rate variability, because I I think that has um, definitely some applications. But then I've been looking at it and I haven't yet, but I've been wanting to teach a group class using the Muse. They have like a practitioner dashboard. So that's the one way I'm considering it is doing like a group meditation class and then letting everyone kind of like take them home for some time period and then come back together. Mm-hmm. That would be an, yeah, that would be an interesting thing to do. And I basically, I've been doing meditation for 45 years at this point. I actually did learn as a child. Oh, cool. <laughs> my father signed up the entire family to learn transcendental meditation. Oh my gosh, neat. Yeah. So for me, it's such an embedded skill set without the equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, people are changing. They need different reinforcement and feedback. And, and I think that that sort of device use is absolutely fabulous. And I just encourage anything because I don't see harm to it unless somebody had a couple of, of, you know, things like say schizophrenia where we would say, you know, let's not take you off into any zone. Your brain is already having a hard time staying balanced. When you're teaching um, your clients meditation, what sort of, what are you doing like a transcendental or what sort of meditation practices are you kind of teaching in your office? 
Yeah, I generally will start with some, um, I'm certified in MBSR, the mindfulness-based stress reduction. So depending upon who the person is and what their experience with meditation has been, most of them don't have a lot of experience with it, but I will try to give them a complementary skill or a very easy skill. So I might walk them through something that's kind of a combination of meditation and um, guided visualization, like a head-to-toe body relaxation exercise, depending upon how much they want to invest time-wise into learning how to practice. I'm not certified to teach transcendental meditation, so I'll refer them out for that. Um, But I can introduce them to mantra-based meditation, breath-based, third-eye meditations, a little bit of the, the TM philosophy, um, you know, using the apps, doing walking meditation. I have a, a number of people who have ADHD um, and they just have a very hard time sitting still to meditate. So really what I choose there depends upon who is sitting in front of me, but it's all in the end mindfulness based. I also saw and have been seeing more lately about the weighted blankets. Can you speak mm-hmm. to that? Weighted blankets, if you're not familiar with them, are something that was, I think, originally developed probably by the mother of a child with autism. Um, and what they discovered over time, and there've been, there's been some interesting research about pressure on the body and how it is calming and soothing for an overactivated central nervous system. So people started playing with it and, and realized that, oh, this is really interesting. My son with autism is calmed by this weighted blanket but my daughter is also calmed by it and she doesn't have a diagnosis. So it's something that's non-invasive. It's a little awkward in that it's, it's heaviness, but I uh, will often recommend it for people who are having problems sleeping because the pressure, it kind of like overstimulates the, the nerve endings, which counterintuitively causes the calming. So it's great for people who have anxiety Uh, for any sort of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, the ADHD, anywhere on the spectrum of autism. So people we might have once called Asperger's patients. I've even had a lot of people who just have anxiety disorders. There are small weighted blankets. They're like lap size. They will drive in Los Angeles traffic with a small weighted blanket on their laps to kind of bring them down a little bit. So again, another brilliant idea and just so versatile and they're getting more mass produced. So they're more cost effective now. And I think it's one of those things where why wouldn't you try this if you think that that might be helpful? This is probably a very naive question, but are weighted blankets like hot? That's actually not a naive question. (laughs) That's a great question. Yes, they because they are heavy, and I forget what the equation is, but some it ends up being like twenty five pounds, give or take, for an adult. I think that heat and the fact that they are made into weighted blankets through either you know stones or pellets or sand or whatever, there's a lot of volume involved. And so for people, especially a lot of patients that I see have multiple chronic illnesses, not just PCOS, they get very hot very easily from some other hormonal stuff. So there is now, I understand, a cooling weighted blanket available. 
they really do think of everything. That's the one thing I was like, ooh, that might be kind of hot. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's interesting because a lot of people who have chronic illness, their body is sort of in overload all the time. And one of the things that seems to kind of get broken is temperature regulation. So it's not just things like having menopause and those sort of you know hot flashes or whatever. But I see people who have chronic Lyme disease, who have anxiety disorders, a whole bunch of other conditions, and they have problems with temperature regulation. So there's also things that uh, you know may be helpful for people like that. So for example, if they're having a sleep problem, I'm going to say, why don't you look at bamboo sheets? Mm-hmm. Why don't you look at some sort of cooling bedding? There are you know mattress pads that have cooling systems built into them now, for example. So those are the kinds of things where I say, look, we've got a lot of really interesting technology and interesting thinkers. And I don't care if it was originally designed for kids with autism. If it works for you, let's use it. Are there any other interesting things like that that you'd recommend or use in your practice? Yes. And I can't remember the name of it, which is terrible, but there's a new wristband out. It looks about the size of an Apple watch. And what it does is you can set it to either heat or cool, and it somehow acts on the pulse points in your wrists, and it can give a sensation through like an electronic or magnetic situation that gives a sensation of increasing your temperature or decreasing it by about four or five degrees. But it's amazing because I've seen stuff like that where it gives a person a sense of control about their body and also provides some comfort. And similarly, I've got people who are using things like the Apple Watches. The gamification of our healthcare has actually become an interesting tool for me as a psychologist. So what I mean is like if you have an Apple Watch and you know you tell it I want to do 5,000 steps a day and you see your little circles three quarters of the way closed, I have people who will get out there at 9 or 10 p.m. and go walk around the block a couple times to get those circles to close. Or apps that track your water consumption or that sort of technology. Um, and it's it's interesting thing, like how we are able to take some of this stuff and use it to encourage people to do what they want to do anyway and support them with that. I have an aura ring and I yeah. really like it. and it's funny because it gives you like your readiness score and I feel mm-hmm. like it is kind of it's gamified and uh-huh. it also makes me think like oh no my readiness score is gonna be bad if I don't get to sleep soon <laughs> or, you know like right it's encouraging the good behavior that you already decided for yourself you want to practice yes exactly and that's the important thing So when it comes to some of the really challenging parts of PCOS, like the infertility, Mm -hmm. I know you work specifically with grief and loss. Can you speak to that and how you support women through that time? Of course. So yeah, one of the things that often will drive a PCOS patient in is the complications related to infertility. So sometimes it is simply about the frustration of not being able to get pregnant, but with PCOS, We do have a problem sustaining pregnancy sometimes also because of the hormonal imbalances and early miscarriage somewhere between the third and fifth month is not at all uncommon. So I sometimes see women who've had as many as a dozen miscarriages and the grief associated with that is phenomenal because if you don't get to a point where you're visibly pregnant and sharing it with others, having a pregnancy loss happens quietly, privately, 
And some people don't want others to know about their infertility journey. You know, it's like, hey, you're all up in my bedroom business, right? Mm -hmm. And so they don't talk about it or they're scared they're going to jinx the pregnancy and they don't talk about it. And then all of a sudden they're not, not pregnant anymore, but it's only the woman and her partner who know this. And so it is something where there's a lot of, of grief around it. And working with it is a little tricky. It depends upon what the person's experience has been with grief in the past. Is this their first experience with grief? Um, what else is happening? You know, does this miscarriage mean that you are now out of funds and can no longer try some IVF, right? So there's many forms of loss. So it can be something where we have to look at, you know, is this loss of identity, loss of a dream, loss of feeling like a healthy person? And just sort of chip away at all of that and work on shifting some of the cognitive beliefs or assumptions about what makes a woman, what is feminine, what is healthy, you know, the power of life and death and all of those things. So it can get kind of big, like in an existential way, you know, we're addressing issues like, why is this happening to me? Why does this keep happening to me? What is wrong with me? Um, and normalizing some of it too, because an awful lot of pregnancies do end in miscarriage, not just for women with PCOS. That's so important to talk about because I think in that situation, oftentimes you do feel very alone. Mm-hmm. You know, and there, there's something in the PCOS community that gets a little bit um, unfriendly around that sometimes. There can be a lot of support, especially from others who've had the same experience. But I've heard women say, well, what is she complaining about? She, she was able to get pregnant. I haven't even been able to get that far. You know, and that sounds kind of ugly on the surface of it, but it's, it's kind of points to the complexity of the feelings that come up with PCOS. It's things like being jealous of women who are pregnant or sometimes hating all women who are pregnant or, you know, avoiding social activities that may involve children or pregnant women. So it's, it's complicated. Like there's a lot of layers of grief, I think, when you have a chronic illness and just the idea in general that, great, I am stuck with this diagnosis forever. I, can, I might even be able to manage it and look like I'm testing out with perfect health on all my labs, but still I'm not perfect in health, right? Yeah. Is kind of disturbing for a lot of people. And so the work with that is to get used to it and say, okay, look, you know, about 50% of people are dealing with one or more chronic illnesses. Yours just happens to be PCOS. Now let's move on from there. I know you mentioned in your story that you were thrown a pack of birth control and said like, come back when you're trying to conceive type of thing. And that was mm-hmm. similar to my experience was like, well, the treatment for PCOS is birth control. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Right with me, right? So you started off and doing a lot of research, but can you? And, and that I neglected to say that along with the pack of birth control pills was the at that time it was a thirty-two page, like small, maybe three inches by four inches or something, booklet listing all of the side effects. And I, being a thorough person, read the entire booklet and said oh, there is no way on earth I am putting even one of these in my mouth. Why are we doing this, women? <laughs> if you have a good oh. answer for that. And like, like, what is the alternative, I guess? And um, sure. what have you experienced as a way to kind of empower women who are on this journey and do it differently? 
So I want to start by saying if you are taking birth control pills, that doesn't mean you're a bad person, a wrong person, or a stupid person, or even that you've made a bad decision. Sometimes birth control pills are incredibly helpful to contain or manage things in the moment. And I think why it's happening this way is because Western medicine is trained to approach from here is the problem, here is the solution. And their solutions are almost always pills and or surgery. And there is very little emphasis or training on stress management, dietary changes, exercise. If you're overweight, you're going to get, quote, counseled on weight loss, which is probably two minutes for the doctor to write a note in an electronic medical file saying, counseled patient to lose 30 pounds. Well, guess what? Half the patients don't come back when you talk to them that abruptly about it because weight gain is a sensitive and tender topic, especially for women with PCOS. So I think that they are doing what they're trained to do. It takes someone who's trained in holistic medicine or integrative or naturopathic or acupuncture or whatever alternative Ayurvedic branch to look at the body as a whole person. Western medicine is amazing. Western medicine has saved my life more than once. But when it comes to something that is a little bit more subtle in the body and not a crisis, then I think we need a much more nuanced approach. And it's pretty clear that just putting women on birth control pills will mask the symptoms, not resolve the symptoms. As far as supporting women with supplements, in your work, do you see do you see women using these and how so? Yes, I definitely see women using any and all of these supplements. And sometimes that gets a little bit out of control. Yeah. Again, I myself was one of them who at one point was taking 96 supplement pills per day. And so I come from that perspective of, wow, look how easy it is to overdo it. But you read about something, you hear about something, and you think, well, I'm going to just throw this pill at it. And maybe that's great. Maybe it's not. That being said, though, the consistent things about women with PCOS, we tend to be magnesium deficient, zinc deficient. Interestingly, those are the two things that are most often implicated in anxiety and depression. And we also have this problem with inositol. So all of the current prescriptions for um, myoinositol and decairo inositol combo stuff, I think are great. I take one myself. Um, I think supplementing in a strategic way is incredibly important. Then yes, supplementation is a really viable approach. I like that you bring up taking 96 supplements because that's sometimes what I see as well. And in attempts to do it naturally, sometimes we overcompensate, I think, with supplements. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm thinking of um, DHA, DHEA and pregnenolone in particular. Um, I've had a few patients who saw somebody who prescribed or recommended those, they read about it, and they ended up really throwing themselves off in the other direction. So maybe it was a deficiency to begin with, but this stuff actually works if you get a quality supplement. And I think we tend to think of them as as harmless. And for the most part, they are. But 
if you are doing mega dosing on something or you are doing it without professional direction, I think it's very easy to either be giving yourself the most expensive urine on the planet <laughs> uh, because you are just peeing it out and getting no benefit from it or that you are sending yourself in the wrong direction or you are taking something that is not doing anything for you. So why are you taking it? So I've, I've come to a place where, you know, I'm, I know a lot about what I'm doing with this and I still talk to an acupuncturist. I still talk to even my Western doctors now are more holistic around this stuff, but getting, getting some guidance around it and customizing is, is very helpful. I think. I agree with you. And I think, especially for women who are considering um, conceiving, being cautious or at least thoughtful about the supplements they're taking, because Mm -hmm. if you're going to be conceiving, you want to make sure that those supplements are safe during pregnancy as well. So yes, that is, that is a really big, important thing to be aware of, because I do see women who are thinking about conceiving and they're trying to get themselves healthy and they are taking sort of random vitamins and supplements, and that might actually be throwing them into some sort of other imbalance, which is going to be counter to getting pregnant. Such a good conversation. I think I could talk about that all day long. (laughs) um, The one thing I want to make sure we talk about before this interview is over is your book, which is fabulous. So it's the PCOS Mood Cure. Can you tell us a little bit about your book and what really drove you to write it? And who who is the book for? Yes, of course. Thank you. So the PCOS Mood Cure, subtitled Your Guide to Ending the Emotional Roller Coaster, is a book that I wrote over the course of seven years. It was originally intended to be kind of an exhaustive um, laying out of all of this knowledge I had gathered, and so making it easier for other people so they didn't have to go to the UCLA Biomed Library like I did. Um, And what happened was over time, it evolved into, here's a distillation of my therapy approach because most people can't come see me in Los Angeles and I don't have time or energy or ability to get them on the phone or the internet or whatever. So how do I get this information out? Because hardly anyone seems to be doing anything about any of this stuff. And I see so many women suffering so much. So it is a very extensively researched, I think there's about 25 pages of my research citations in the back of the book. Um, And it's me putting together all sorts of stuff that I know from different branches of psychotherapy and giving you kind of a framework for what do you need to take care of yourself best where do you need professional help, how to find the best professional help. So it's really, and it does have a lot of information about things like diet and exercise. So you could take the book and really follow through with it as your own program. And one of the things I've done is I've kept the price of the um, the Kindle book at $3.99. So if you cannot give up your latte for one day to get this book, then... I can't help you. That's so affordable. Yeah, for three ninety nine, <laughs> there's no excuses. <laughs> if you want a paperback, that's a different story. You want an autograph, that's a whole different story. <laughs> but yeah, I really, I really, really wanted this to be like a public service book um, because I feel like you can't 
know, understand, manage your body or your psychological symptoms unless you're really looking at the whole thing. And to pull out a piece, and, and that is kind of where Western medicine has become problematic is you know, if you're going to the gastroenterologist and not talking about the fact that you have PCOS, well, we now know that a, an extraordinarily high number of women with PCOS have gut issues, right? That doesn't make sense. You really have to. So to give people a framework where they can say, and by the way, this PCOS thing, they may not get the answer they want, but they can use it as a jumping off point for their own research. Well, I highly encourage everyone to get your book. We're getting towards the end of the interview. And two questions I always like to ask everybody. The first one is, what does the word nourish mean to you? Nourish means sustenance. It means taking time, energy, resources to do the things you need to do to keep your body and your brain healthy. And that is something that you need to figure out yourself over time and ex with experimentation and something that you do with a loving attitude towards yourself. What is one thing you do consistently for your own self-care? I meditate every single day. You said you do transcendental, right? I actually mix them up. Sometimes I've got ants in my pants and I just can't sit still for a proper meditation. So I'll go down to the beach and do a walking meditation. I will do transcendental meditation. I will do mindfulness. I'll do guided meditations. Um, it doesn't really matter which kind it is as long as you're doing it. It, it gives you the benefit. Oh, I know our audience is going to want to connect with you. What are the best ways for them to find you online? The best ways to find me online are to go on Facebook where you will find PCOS Wellness and my private group, which is a, a no-fee group. It's free to join. You just have to answer a couple of questions. It's called PCOS Psychology. And there's about 4,000 women in there who are pretty darn active in talking about PCOS and all of the stuff related to it. You can also go on Amazon and look for the PCOS Mood Gear or my new book, which is called Moving Through Grief. Well, thank you so much for being on today. I really, really appreciate it. Is there any last messages or words of wisdom that you want to leave our audience with today? I would say just do one thing. And I like that question that you asked. So download the Insight Timer app for free and do a three-minute meditation or plan your day so that you can sleep for an extra half hour or make sure that you've got something green on your plate at all meals. Some, pick one thing and then build on it from there. I love it. Fabulous advice. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you being on today. You're welcome. I enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Nourish and Shine. I hope that you enjoy this episode and that you'll leave me a review on iTunes so that more people can hear the podcast. I'd also love to connect with you on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I would love to hear your questions, so please send them my way. Also, you can check out my website. It's amysapola.com. I hope that today's interview provided you with some inspiration and practical advice to nourish your mind, body, and spirit, optimize your health, and to live a whole vibrant life. Please join me again next week for another amazing interview. Have a wonderful week.